All right, here we are for episode five of the exciting podcast, Natural Awakening, where uh, I invite people to talk about meditation, uh, awakening, science, uh, and how all of that intersects in current uh, people's lives. And my guest today is uh, Roger, I don't actually know how to pronounce your last name, Tisdell? No, Roger Thisdell. 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 Um, Roger, hello, hello. please uh, introduce yourself briefly. Yeah, hello, people. I'm Roger Thisdell. I'm, oh, yeah. <laughs> what to say? What to say? What would you like to know? Um, so what, what are you up to these days? What, uh, mm -hmm. I know you're studying uh, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing a master's in philosophy for now. We'll see how that goes and if I continue with it. But yeah, at the moment I'm doing that. I, uh, I teach English online. I also teach uh, meditation. And I'm in the process of renewing my American passport. I'm uh, an Anglo-American, born and raised uh, near London. But my... Father's from California, my mom's half American, but um, yeah, I grew up in England for the most part. And now I live in Spain and I'm getting on with life, uh, connecting with people like you and uh, enjoying things really. Yeah. Great. And uh, maybe you could just say a little bit about uh, your childhood. Um, I know there was some uh, history of depression in your adolescence, if you're willing to share, yeah. and how that yeah. connects to uh, what eventually brought you to uh, your meditation practice. Okay, cool. Let's let's run through it. So I think as things go, I was just genetically born with quite a low hedonic set point. So I was kind of... Mm, I mean, maybe I was a happy kid up until a point, but I think my level of well-being was below average. And then in my teenage years, I really became quite a cynical, pessimistic kid, you know, one to kind of always look on the, the dark side of life. And um, But when I was 16, I remember I watched the movie Revolver by Guy Ritchie. And that movie's all about uh, the main character, Jason Statham, is battling his ego. And uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a good movie, actually. But it's all about him versus his ego. And then at the end of that movie, during the credits, there's a bunch of talking heads talking about, you are not your ego. The thing you think you are, you're not. And all these different people. And uh, I was like, wow, what does that mean? You know, first time I'm hearing these ideas. And uh, I sort of started looking more into that. And I discovered Eckhart Tolle. And Eckhart Tolle taught, talking about, Oh, yes, you're, you're not your ego and, and talking about um, you know, I don't know, thoughts being sort of uh, problematic, the voice in your head, that's not you and stuff like this. And that, that, up, that transformed me in a bit, kind of discovering that material. And then I remember at 16 sort of trying to test myself, like how long could I go without thinking in my head, trying to walk like a block down the street without any you know, languaging happening. And yeah, um, then I sort of kind of got into meditation a little bit because of that, but just, you know, just doing it for a few minutes, sort of focusing on my breathing to calm down, but nothing really profound. But meanwhile, then, so it says depressed most of my teenage years. And then up until the age of 20, it really, really culminated. 
and I was, uh, yeah, I mean, sort of fixed on suicidal ideation by that point, like really thinking about it every day. And I, I felt really, I felt really stuck in samsara is one way to put it. Or maybe I didn't have a word for it at the time, but noticing the recursive uh, desire, dissatisfaction, uh, rinse, repeat cycle. And sort of thinking, there's no way to get out of this. How do I get out of it? And uh, really feeling like such tragedy at the, the suffering of the world. So it was kind of a depression. I, I didn't think my situation was so bad, but I just thought the world's situation is so bad and there's so much suffering. And I was like, oh, this is like, uh, you know, living in, in hell. Luckily, I never acted on it or anything like that. But um, yeah, at the age of 20, then I had uh, a magic mushroom experience and that blew open the doors of perception. And I was astounded that it was a bad trip as well. It was a really, really terrifying trip, but I was astounded at how uh, different ones experience to life could be, how, how altered consciousness could be. No one had ever told me that that was a possibility. Uh, and, you know, I kept thinking about that trip, thinking about that trip. And then I had a, another subsequent trip and that second trip cured my depression, like from day to night. And what I noticed was my hedonic set point just got bumped up. So now all of a sudden I was more enthusiastic about life, looking forward to things, I swear, you know, the world actually seemed more colorful. And then that's when I started getting really serious about meditation. So quickly on from then, I started doing an hour of meditation practice a day as like fueled by curiosity, just, you know, astounded what I experienced in these altered states. What is consciousness? What am I? What is this whole thing? Um, just a, a point of, of curiosity, what, <clears throat> if you can trace it back to a specific event um, in either the first or the second uh, experience with, with psilocybin, um, was it an experience of uh, ego dissolution or, you know, uh, colloquially ego death that cured the depression? Or was it just the vividness, the, enga you know, engagement with the world of the senses that kind of brought you out? Yeah, so I didn't have ego death or ego loss during those trips it's actually the first trip was so bad because the ego is desperately trying to hold on because it it felt like my my short-term memory and my long-term memory was lapsing and it felt like every two seconds i was being reborn refreshed and there was something in the middle trying to hold on to the coherency and, and track everything as it happening but i was like losing my memory and really trying to hold on and it was this um that was petrifyingly uh, frightening. The second trip, what for me, what struck me was that was a, a difficult trip as well, but on the come down of it, I was feeling good. I felt like, okay, I've kind of gotten out of the storm now. And I'm, I was listening to music and kind of bopping through town and feeling really good. And I realized, hang on a second, I never feel this good. Like I was just excited, I was kind of, you know, kind of skipping while listening to the music. And, and then I thought, oh, hang on, maybe some people feel this 
way about life all the time. Maybe the, the, the way that I'm just kind of enjoying life and listening to my music and maybe that's some people's you know default state. And uh, yeah, that felt like uh, kind of the refresher I needed. And yeah, it, it just from one day to the next cured the depression. It's quite amazing. And I know I felt very lucky about that because I know that doesn't happen to many people. For sure. Yeah. I mean, psychedelics in the current culture, there's a lot of hype around them as some kind of miracle cure. And they can f function in that way for some people at some times. Um, uh, but 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 not always. Uh, yeah. But very glad for you that it that it, that it functioned in that way. That's that's really really wonderful. Um, Thank so, you. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can I can say. I mean, the thing that also caught my attention about that was that my hedonic set point went up and stayed up at a higher level. So it wasn't just about sort of you know temporarily feeling good and then coming back down to baseline. The baseline was moved up, and that. I think reorientated my whole sense about the, the project of trying to uh, alleviate my own suffering and, and, and help others ultimately was, ah, it's not about just having these short, like trying to continuously kind of feel good and then come down, feel good, come down, feel good, come down. There's ways to permanently move the baseline up. And so that became more uh, my project. That, that's what I was interested in. Right. I think there's a, this might be a positive psychology phrase. Maybe, maybe you can remember the origin. Uh, I can't at the moment, but uh, it really is possible to be better than well. Mm -hmm. Better than well. Mm. Um, great. Uh, maybe you could just, uh, again, briefly kind of walk us through. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on this, but, you know, that was, uh, that second psilocybin trip was, was how many years ago for you now? Oh, six. Six. So it was shortly after that that you began uh, meditation in earnest. Is that mm -hmm. maybe so? Six years, long time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but as best as you can, uh, you know, compress that that journey uh, to where you are now um, into uh, something digestible. I, I you know, okay. make the attempt anyway. Okay. Okay. So um, yeah, shortly after that second trip, I started um, fervently meditating and. Uh, yeah, going into like longish meditation practices, if you, if you count one hour being long, and uh, doing lots of different techniques, and and I was I was exploring a lot of different states of mind for about a little short of a year, and then in that in that time, I remember just a week after my twenty first birthday. I got stream entry and that was really clear to me because I was sitting in a philosophy classroom and I asked my professor a question and as I was waiting for his response there was a, a flash which I think now would be a, a cessation and then life was never the same after that and it was like something changed I mean I didn't react I kind of carried on in the class like normal but then I came out of that class and sort of the world was a little bit sparkly and shimmering and I felt different I was like what is this what is this I feel super 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 content and the way I describe what, what was obvious there about the difference between okay pre-stream entry and then after stream entry is again there was another bump in well-being I'd say like a, a sort of 10% increase in well-being um, it like 
really life just got easier after stream entry. It takes the edge off. And it felt like I had opened up this dimension of equanimity in my mind that was permanently accessible. There was always this okay place in my mind, no matter what was happening. And, 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 and then from there, there was the distancing of the self. Like I didn't feel like I was the, the personal self. I was not my emotions, not my thoughts, but at that point I was identifying with awareness. I'm that which is aware of those things and none of those things. And then- All right, um, before, yeah. before you go further, I wanna interrupt. Um, uh, and maybe uh, briefly you could contextualize just because some people may not be familiar with the term stream entry. Um, yeah. Maybe you could just give like a, a you know, capsule definition of the term. I think you, phenomen yeah. <laughs> phenomenologically you gave a, a lovely description, but. How do you define stream entry? Well, okay, so I'm referencing the Theravada fourth path model um, stream entry is the first of the four paths of enlightenment All in right. the Theravada Buddhism school. Great. And if, if people want to Google that, you know, stream entry, Theravada, T-H-E-R-A-V-A-D-A, -A -A, you'll, you'll, find, you'll find what we're talking about. Um, all right, mm -hmm. carry on. So then, uh, you know, you, you know that, that's... The, <laughs> It's interesting to describe the different stages because in some way, some of those descriptions will sound the same as the other stages, but they're understood from a different place or they're understood, what is being described is understood more deeply or there is actually a subtle distinction that's being made. It might not be obvious when it's just voiced in plain words, but, uh, you know, Stream entry is great. It sort of uh, increases your well-being, reduces your suffering a great degree, and you have this kind of sense of like, oh, am I am I enlightened now, or like what? You know, I feel good, but then you know, I think quite quickly you realize, no, this isn't the full shebang, and you're still, you know, emotional and reactive, and um, still still suffering. Um, and then, okay, you know, keep practicing, keep getting to work. And I mean, what to say, you know, the second and third path are less uh, monumental in terms of the shift, but then, then the shift to fourth path is gigantic. I mean, it's, it's so blown away by uh, shift into, into fourth path. It's really, it, it's what you kind of wish stream entry was all along and more and yeah, I mean, we could go so, you know, so much into it. All right. That's probably where we'll spend most of the rest of the podcast. Before we move mm -hmm. on, uh, another term that it might be helpful to define for folks is um, cessation, um, which you, you you briefly used there, this, mm -hmm. this flash mm -hmm. phenomenon. Um, so maybe you could just give a little context for folks. What, what does that mean? Yeah, cessation is when consciousness shuts off. So it's this briefest moment where there's no experience whatsoever. Ever and um, there's a couple of different doorways into it, and um, I mean the way I describe the phenomenology of cessation is you've got to be in a state of high equanimity, and there's a a defocusing effect of of, of all the sense doors, 
and then suddenly there's like a jump cut in experience and then you feel refreshed and more awakened and alive you know great and uh from from what i've i, I have read um as well um from deeply concentrated states like say say the the jhanas the entry and the exit can actually be clearly perceived um and the kind of gradual cessation and then building up again of of consciousness can be seen happening in, in real time um is and, and that you know is very uh, insightful and uh and liberating so yeah yeah and you, you can begin to predict when a cessation is going to occur if you if you're able to track through the um the stages of insight, you know, through you know, through the dark night stage into equanimity, low equanimity, high equanimity, and then you know, okay, it's coming sort of any minute now, and then boom, and then yeah, you, know, you see it happen. You can kind of feel it. It's like a experience is, you know, it's, it's like it's ripe. It's you know, it's, it's like uh, I'm lacking the words at the moment, but something, 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 something. <laughs> something 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 yeah this is gonna what our conversation is gonna be like now just well to... something 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 yeah something 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 <laughs> um well perhaps hopefully we can be a, a little clearer and uh, again for people who haven't heard some of these terms before the um the the path of insight or the, the progress of insight sorry not the path um is a, a 16 stage uh, description of the uh progression of uh, meditation up unto um, this point of of cessation. Again, coming from the Theravada Buddhist tradition. Again, Google progress of insight Theravada. You'll it'll pop right up. Um, and again, for any of these terms we're using, any of the phenomenology we describe, uh, there is vast and contentious disagreement about. So this is just two guys on the internet. Uh, mm. you, read up, read up, and uh, have 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 your own thoughts and opinions. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, that's kind of why I'm not so beholden to these terms or titles or anything. I just want to describe the phenomenology, and if people don't like the name being given to it, okay, so be it. Uh, but here's I'm trying I'm trying my best to just accurately describe my phenomenology and what's going on. Excellent. So, uh, moving on then, accurately describing your phenomenology. Uh, what what's what's going on? What is what is life like? Can you give us oh, a before and after? That's that's very it's difficult. So good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Uh, where to even begin? Okay. Well, maybe we can, we can take our time, sort of getting into this. The again, following this theme of increase of the hedonic set point. So it's been about ten months for me now since since I had my my last shift, and. Okay, so before this last shift, okay, so uh, I mean, one of the hallmark features that I used to describe sort of how my mind is, is it's like decentralized, it's permanent centerless mind, there's no singly positioned epistemic agent in the center, there's no, this knower of experience where there used to be, that has disappeared and uh, hasn't reappeared. And before this shift, I was kind of even though I was sort of able to attain states of deep peace and deep equanimity and sort of really deepening my insight into emptiness. Emptiness is another uh, jargony term of Buddhism that might not mean what you think it means. You've got to look up what emptiness means. Uh, I still wasn't like, I was like, how does my well-being compare to others? I don't know. How, I don't know if I'm 
have more well-being than other people's well-being. But now after this shift, it's abundantly obvious my well-being is, is ridiculously high um, compared to other people's. And so there's much to get into. One thing is the mood stability is off the charts. So before I would feel lots of emotions as, as, as everybody does, you know, that if you pay attention, you're always cycling through emotions. And it would seem that uh, every kind of thought and sensation would have an emotional coloring to it. And then just depending on my, my energy levels and my blood sugar and how much sleep I had and, and, and temperament and what's happening, I'd be feeling waves of different emotions throughout the day in a very normal, normal way. And as you meditate a lot, you become really, really sensitive to these emotions so that even if it's just sort of percolating a little bit, it's like very clear to you. Oh, that, that's loneliness. Oh my God, I'm so lonely. <laughs> Something like this. Now, really, there isn't this fluxing of emotions. It's just stably, I'm just good all the time, in a good mood all the time. And I, I didn't know this would be biologically possible. So another thing with the going through the stages of insight, the stages of insight is, uh, yeah, I guess the, the 16 parts of how your attention will uh, fluctuate and alter naturally, just as it is. You, if you, if you know to look out for them, you can predict these changes in attention uh, when you're sitting down to meditate. And each stage has, each stage would change your relationship to being. So there's the dark night stages, there's um, disillusion, fear, misery, uh, disgust, desire for deliverance, reobservation. And each one of those, as you go through them, you have a slightly different relationship to existence, like Again, fear, fearful of existence, and then desire for deliverance, kind of kind of wanting to get over the hump of this moment to get to the next moment because you're looking for the gold on the other side of the hill. And um, you know, in, indulging in this moment, cherishing this moment. Now, when I sit to meditate, I can still go through these cycles and see attention, the quality of attention change, but it's not coming with this emotional bent to it, where my relationship to existence is, is changing. And in fact, I, in, in part, I feel because the mind is decentralized, there's no, there's no one single spot that gets the final hearsay on, on calling like, what does this being feel in relationship to existence? Because there's no one spot to speak for every other spot of being, it's, 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 um, I mean, and this, this speaks to the no self quality, which is like you've just dissolved into existence and it, it uproots this, the will to be and the will to not be as a, as a type of hindrance. Um, you know, just if I ask myself, do I want to continue living or do I not want to continue living? And, I, and again, someone who's, who's, very familiar with suicidal thoughts, so very familiar with the, the will to not be a part of me that's calling out to not be 
and and also you know enjoying life and a part of me that wants the will to be now if i ask myself that do i want to be or not be there's 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 no one to to answer that question it doesn't make sense it, it falls on deaf ears in a way it's just um, a, a, a signal being dropped into a resonant bowl without uh, like a pole in the middle <laughs> oh yeah yeah i like that yeah. <laughs> that's the, the metaphor that came to mind um let's see so You'll have to excuse me. My thoughts have dropped off. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I know it happens. It happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we kind of talk about this. The, the, I guess the phenomenology of the fourth path and the the hedonic set point and mm, right. Uh, okay, I wanted to play devil's advocate in here. Okay. Yes. Um, so pretending that uh, I don't believe you for a moment. Um, what? Uh, what? What if, in fact? Uh, through your uh, attentional development, you are in fact just uh, severely dissociating from your normal human feelings. Uh, and uh, that uh, without your conscious awareness of the fact, uh, all of that is still operating beneath the level of your conscious awareness uh, and kind of puppeting your uh, very equanimous, very uh, internally happy uh, mind. And yet all of that is still uh, occurring just outside of your awareness because you've somehow excluded it. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm quite familiar with dissociated states. So, well, so another ability that was gained once I got stream entry was this ability to enter into the witness, which is this kind of meditative move you can pull where you feel like you're, um, yeah, it's like, a dis you know, engaging a dissociated state where you remove yourself it's like you take one step back from the world and everything is kind of slightly less in focus and you don't feel personally attached to anything it's like i'm just you know the great witness seeing all of this stuff and i'm indifferent to it all and all that stuff so i'm quite familiar with uh, dissociated states in that sense and i and i i did have a bout of um uh derealization as well at some point. At some point during, I think, third third path, I actually went through a derealization experience. And normally that is characterized with the world seeing le seeming less in focus, less rich, less uh, tangible, like you can't get a hold of anything and nothing is, uh, nothing is substantially real, but in actually a, disheartening way in a way that there's actually a, a mellow like it's a bummer kind of effect going on and normally I, I think dissociated people are not so expressive and this is there's descriptions I could give about my state that would seem to overlap the dissociated state I think where I could say well yeah well everything's like empty everything is an illusion <laughs> you know, it's like no none of it is real none of it is uh, really hard hitting and you know just uh, spend time with me you'll see that i'm pretty happy for a dissociated person and i can still really get in touch with the phenomena and clearly track this stuff 
And, you know, I think also a dissociated state, there's still, there still is a sense of self, but it's a sense of self that's pulled back. That's trying to not look directly at the world, but turn its head slightly. This is different. Excellent. So to, to summarize, um, you, you're, because of your prior experience, um, again, you know, sus- pretending again that I'm suspending, dis- uh, suspending mm-hmm. belief, um, that because of your past experience, you have kind of introspective discrimination between dissociated states and the state that you currently enjoy. Mm-hmm. You, you, can, you, you know the difference from memory and, and introspection in both cases. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, I'm sure that, uh, that satisfies me. It might not satisfy other people. Uh, we, yeah. you know, when, when this stuff is studied by science, I'm, I'm sure the differences will show up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can get more into the, the texture of, of space, of, of, of color, um, of, of the sights and sounds uh, of your external quote unquote uh, environment. And also uh, perhaps what your relation to uh, thoughts and images that appear in the mind uh, to give a contrast for most people most of the time the outer world is a kind of solid uh, space that one seems to be positioned within um, and one's thoughts uh, feelings and emotions are a kind of uh, bubbling complex that interact and kind of bounce off of each other uh, that ripple out into uh, actions good and bad and it's all quite solid um, sticky you seem to be describing the opposite of all of that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you and I had a conversation before about, and I was trying to describe how now the insight into emptiness is so stark that nothing ever has a chance to fully reify. It's like, imagine, I was saying this to you earlier, but I'll say it again for the sake of the podcast. There's kind of some threshold level that needs to be met for something to become a solid sort of concrete entity and be a fixed noun and now whatever arises in the mind whatever phenomena thoughts sounds sights whatever have you it's it's it emerges and manifests but it never meets this threshold and there's a seeing of it disappearing the moment it's appearing and so all that is uh all qualia is understood to be hollow models you know they're, they're, they're all deeply empty no, no matter how much they're uh, manifesting yeah. so uh potentially not that i suggest we do this we could we could dial up the intensity of the stimulation uh of your experience um you know uh shinzen young uses a kind of gruesome example uh you know uh, someone if someone went medieval on him that's his phrase uh got up got out the blowtorch and the pliers um, That's he a said, Pulp Fiction. In Pulp Fiction, I'm going to go medieval on your ass. He said, you know, Shinzen will, will, will say, you know, like, he'd have a bad time. Give him a few months, though, to kind of ramp up and, you know, he'd be okay. <laughs> Does that track? I, okay, I won't claim that level. You know, I, I'm still adverse to painful stimuli I still still don't appreciate you know being stabbed or anything like that but i mean i haven't i mean I, yeah i haven't experienced really really painful stimuli so i i'd be really interested to hear of practices where you can uh, endure that stuff more 
but the i mean the, at at this point psychological suffering is basically non-existent my my only bothers in life are like physical discomforts and uh yeah luckily i don't experience a lot of physical pain but um you know if it were to i mean that's just a good way to test me you know so <laughs> I don't know if well, you want to come around at some point and start prodding me <laughs> we can try it out i mean age will do that work for us you know we, we can check in when you're 60 70 80 hopefully you live that long you know uh, conditions permitting well um part, part of me doesn't doesn't care as well you know that this is this is the thing about the decentralized mind that again that overcoming that hindrance of the desire to be, the desire to not be. When I sort of contemplate on death, there's a sense of, uh, I mean, one thing I, I'm cautious about is saying things and then you never know how you're gonna react when the time comes. So I can, I can talk all this stuff now while I'm in good health. But for now, it seems like, yeah, I'm uh, less and less afraid of death. Yeah, and I, I think that is actually quite significant because I people don't realize the degree to which their fear of death is prompting them in their decisions and behaviors day to day. For sure, uh, perhaps a good framing we can bring in, uh, you know, some a classical uh, Buddhist analogy of the the second arrow, which with which I'm sure you're familiar. So there's the first arrow, which is. The, uh, the 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 pains and and aches that you're subject to just by virtue of having been born uh, a mammalian organism you're going to have pain you're going to have hunger you might not sleep that well all the time uh, and eventually you're going to get old sick and 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 perish uh, that's unavoidable it's we're, we're stuck with it we're embodied beings entropy does its thing uh, and uh, we're eventually going to be shuffled off this mortal coil whether we like it or not uh, with a heaping of pain along the way however, uh, what we don't realize, or, uh, most of us anyway, uh, you, you may be being one of the exceptions, uh, is that the majority, um, in fact, almost all of the suffering uh, in existence, in our conscious experience, comes from this kind of uh, construction and layering on top of that first uh, arrow. The, the metaphor is, you know, there's, there's an arrow wound, and then you stick another arrow in there, like the pain is 10, 100 times worse, whereas the first, the first arrow, that's eh, not that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it blew my mind as well, the reduction in suffering that this, that this uh, that has, has occurred. Yeah, the ma vast majority of our suffering is psychological suffering. All right. Um, so, <laughs> All right. I mean, we could, we could, we could, we, we could, we could end there, but I, we have some time. So let's, let's try to get a little more detailed about the, the, the bear, um, as bare as we can get with the construction of language, the bare phenomenology of your sensory experience. Um, let's let's talk about real basics. Uh, what what if anything has changed in your perception of space? Phys physical extension. The, hmm, well, okay. The the boundarylessness construction of the mind now that is uh, ever evident. So. Right before Fourth Path, it felt like I was in this bubble of consciousness, and that bubble included everything that was uh, in, in, in sight, everything that could be experienced was encapsulated in this bubble. It was kind of like this cage of the mind. And now that one thing I talk about is actually those, that construction of the sense of the, the boundaries of mind is amodal perception. 
meaning you don't directly perceive it, but they're heavily inferred by the mind that there must be an edge because there's an edge to visual stimuli, yet uh, this must mean the edge of the mind. But there's an understanding that whatever is projected in the mind is not, is not the objective uh, formulation of this thing. It's, it's if you are experiencing space, that space is a model and this, the model is empty as well. And so there's, um, with, with this, once you reach a, reach a certain threshold level of insight into emptiness, you can never fully buy into the model. That's how it is. So it's projected, but you're not fully bought in. And I uh, can see space uh, appear and disappear, you know, kind of experiences where there's, there's no space, um, say seventh jhana. And then, yeah, there's that. There's like, what is big or small? And in this space, there is no center. So there's no sense that everything is being orchestrated around one point or one knower. So all the phenomena uh, appears where it appears and it is known in its place where it appears and is not referencing back to some homunculus. Great. Um, so to, again, just kind of put it into my own words, um, maybe it'll help some other people understand kind of what you're talking about. Uh, there's still enough of a perception of resistance uh, or a fluctuation of space uh, when you look out that, you know, ah, there's a relatively solid object over there. I'm not going to go walk into it. There's going to be, if I bump up against it, there's going to be resistance. However, it's not uh, bought into. Um, and that you can see in real time um, kind of the construction of the space of your experience uh, that where before there were solid boundaries, instead there's just uh, the movement of of space that temporarily gives the impression I'm in a room, this is a solid floor, uh, my body is solid, etc. Is that? Yes, yes. And, and there's this sense of this is like you finally get the you know freedom from the mind, like you're not encaged in a space. And yeah, they go obviously the, the system can still be modeling the the organism so that the organism could orientate in the environment and avoid lampposts, all those kind of things. But none of it's taken to be personal. And maybe we could say, I wanna to get to time, but maybe we, we could say a little bit uh, more about, uh, I think a very important element of, of the experience which you referenced, um, that uh, phenomena, um, objects of experience, objects um, are known where they are. Uh, the awareness of the objects is not different from the appearance of the objects themselves. Maybe you could say a bit more. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that was fundamental to this realization that awareness or consciousness cannot be separated from the, the thing being known, the, the qualia. It really, they are indistinguishable. They, it's not possible to separate them. And, before in my path, there was, I mean, maybe someone could say that to me and I could, I could relate to that, but the, the mind was still construing them as somehow slightly separate. Like there was still a slight division between the two. Maybe awareness is, is over the top of the thing being perceived or, you know, just around it or, or is like somehow a separate molecule that is in it. And, it, and if you're still conceiving of it like that, then there's this distinction. You've got to regular. No, 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 they can't be any distinction at all. 
but you, you couldn't have one without the other. I'm reminded of, uh, of Dogen, the, 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 this is going to be a bad paraphrase, uh, but the, the study of, of, of Buddhism is the study of the self. To study the self is to forget the self. Um, to forget the self uh, is to be actualized by the myriad things of the world. So in this, in this case, being actualized of the things of the world is um, exactly what you're saying. There, there isn't some independent uh, observer of things happening. There's, yeah. there's just yeah. things happening. Uh, yeah, to, 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 to look at something and, and be fully looking at it and not having this slight time delay of, of watcher perceiving object reference back to watcher, you know, this, this movement of information which slows the process down and interferes. It's like, just, yeah, in the seeing, there's just the scene. It's immediately grasped immediately apprehended yeah there's a there's a slight a slight lag a slight disjunction which is actually quite subtly painful uh once you catch on to it <laughs> and mm. having that having that gone oh well okay then we can move into time do you want to go into time now or do i think to... i think we're good let's let's go into time let's move through time into the conversational time into the timeless now <laughs> Or not, not the now. So this not was the now. my surprise. Yes, yes, because um, it's one thing you know Eckhart Tolle always talks about is the now. It's always the now, and then which which is a really good thing to recognize. But is your mind subtly construing the now as an object, as a thing, as a place? And what I found. <laughs> is that there, there is, everything is so empty that there isn't even a now. There isn't even enough time for something to fully manifest and, in, and exist in even one moment. It can't because the, the, everything is appearing and disappearing. It's hard to talk about it without time, but so incredibly simultaneous, simul in fact, simultaneously, that a now cannot even take hold, cannot consolidate itself. And perhaps this is recognized, again, through the decentralized mind. Well, what, what makes up the mind? The, the present moment is actually sort of a, a construing of, a, okay, multiple data points that are, okay, uh, outside of direct experience, we presume, are um, inputs that are taken in over across a series of time. And then the brain forms a picture of the now, but also because we're trying to preemptively interact with the future to, to predict what is coming next, your now is actually a subtle prediction of the future as well. The past meets the future. And with this decentralized mind, again, there's no single entity in the center who gets to decide what is the now. Like, the, again, like what is, the mind calls a blank. It can't conceive of, oh, that was the now. Whereas mm -hmm. before, okay, third path, there was a, still a, a uh, the epistemic agent who could, who could be like, okay, now, now, now. And now there's no one to uh, make, call that shot and, and definitely not speak for the rest of the system. And, and what I found was, before 
I would try to be mindful. And the way I'd think about being mindful was I would slow down my behavior. I felt like I was trying to pay more attention to the now, what is happening now, get more into the now. At fourth path, one thing was I lost the ability to be mindful. Meaning, you know, mindful could be understood in many ways. But what I mean is, there's no possibility to not be present. It's so understood that you know even thoughts about the the future are arising here. Um, I it makes no difference for me to slow down my behavior and pay attention. I mean, yeah, I can pay attention to things in more detail, but there's no sense that by doing that, I'm becoming more conscious, mm-hmm. you know, whereas before there was that kind of sense, like, okay, now I'm being really mindful and more conscious. Now there's, there's no distinction. There. Excellent. Um, so uh, one way you could say it is that by uh, closing the gap spatially between observer and observed uh, and uh, between past and and future, uh, actually, the what you know what here and that and now uh, they vanish, um, and this is borne out in current cognitive science and neuroscience. The present um, is is specious, the specious present. Uh, it doesn't actually exist. It's a multifaceted um, construction that is sustained by basically introspective uh, fuzziness. Uh, and when you ramp up the clarity enough, it's there's just things happening simultaneously all at once, but not in one bound moment of time. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, does that describe your experience? Yeah. I like, I liked how you describe that. And it, it's yeah, really interesting to see how modern cognitive science seems to be really aligned with uh, meditative perception. There's a, I'm, I'm, I'm aware as well of the, the tendency among uh, Buddhists, I think, I, I would identify as one is, you know, you've done mostly Buddhist meditation. Would you consider yourself a Buddhist? Not really. Again, I mean, I'm very influenced by Buddhism for sure, but I'm not beholden to it. I also recognized I'm pretty ignorant about Buddhism. So, uh, but I'm, I'm super influenced by Buddhism. There's, there's kind of a, a privileging in a lot of modern religious science dialogue of, of Buddhism as kind of uh, a scientific religion. Um, in ways that, you know, when you inspect closely the tradition, the claims that are made, uh, and current cognitive science, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a modernist confabulation. Uh, the philosopher Evan Thompson does a really good job of kind of unpacking. Uh, it's like a very specific uh, constructed version of, of Buddhism, really within the last two centuries, that has kind of been custom built to fit with modern science. So of course it yes. works. Of course it, yes. it, it fits together nicely. Um, yeah. Although they had wacky metaphysical beliefs where like the whole world was sitting on water or, you know, there was like just water mm-hmm. under the ground forever. And oh, sure. Yeah. You, effort, yeah. If you actually look at traditional Buddhist belief uh, and, and, and dogma orthodoxy, uh, you will find just as much <laughs> that is incompatible with modern science as, as any mm-hmm. other uh, religion. It's just the version of Buddhism, which has kind of been exported and adopted by Western converts like myself, uh, has kind of been cus- custom made to fit our biases and prejudices, which uh, it's, if you don't know that, you, you know, read, read Evan Thompson's Why I'm Not a Buddhist or uh, David McMahon's uh, The Making of Buddhist Modernism, and uh, the wool will be cleared from your eyes. I felt I should stick that in there. Um, 
Mm. Yeah, I remember Evan Thompson. I remember I listened to a podcast by him, I think, uh, Michael Taft's podcast, and then I wrote him an email, I think, just saying, like, oh, it's really, really inspired because he's he's a meditator, but he's also a philosopher, and I was like, that's that's what I like. <laughs> so, uh-huh. yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, not that I believe in these sorts of things, but, you know, manifesting with intention. Maybe I'm hoping I can get Evan on, on here at some point. <laughs> Maybe I can get oh, Evan, and, Evan and you in dialogue. That would be fun. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> he, he, would, he would really uh, put, put you to the fire. He, he'd, be, he'd be incisive, and I think you could handle it. It'd be fun. Cool. cool. Um, I mean, we covered space. We covered time. We covered uh, identity or the lack thereof and the, like, non-fixation of, of space and time. Um, let's see. Um, what else is there? What else, what else is there? Consciousness, although consciousness there, you know, if, if you ask, you know, what is consciousness? It's like, well, I don't, this, this stuff, (laughs) there's the sense, you know, the, the, the ability to see all these things defabricate, see space defabricate, time defabricate. And, and then eventually consciousness shut off as well. Yeah. Um, it, I, mean, to, I mean, revolutionizes your understanding of reality. For maybe sure. You just you know, witness these things happen. Let's uh, maybe we, we have, we have again, a little bit more time. Maybe we could talk about metaphysics, uh, what your relationship is to uh, your cognitive relationship. Cause I know your perceptual relationship to mm-hmm. space, time and identity is uh, quite, uh, quite abnormal though normative from a Buddhist perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your relationship, if any, your cognitive uh, verbal mm-hmm. uh, relationship to, uh, to the notion of, of, of consciousness, of, of space uh, and, and of time? We, we covered the perceptual version, you know, what, uh, yeah. or do you just not speculate? No, I'm, I'm inquisitive and, and interested in nature of reality and what is going on, what can we infer about reality beyond direct experience what is out there what is happening uh i'm you know strikingly i'm probably quite physicalist i do imagine there is a brain um construing these things there is a an organism a biological entity that's taking an input from the world and evolution has you know shaped consciousness and the things we perceive or probably uh, because they were um, beneficial for our survival. And it makes me wonder, you know, is space and time, I have a kind of thought that, you know, in, um, what's, what's it called, what's it called? But the study of symbols and such, where you can, I'm blanking on the name of the, the, the domain, the topic, you can have symbols that look directly like what they're trying to depict. There's a difference between sort of icon symbols. I, there's an itch somewhere in my cognitive space that is like, I know, uh, maybe it'll come up, but I know what you're talking okay, about. Yeah, so, so, okay, so traffic light, red means stop, green means go. But red has nothing to do with stopping and green has nothing to do with going if you look directly at you know, the color red. Like we've created an association there. Um, where there's smoke, there's fire. You see smoke, you reckon there's fire. And, but then you could actually draw a, a symbol of a flame that looks like fire, and you associate, okay, this picture with 
of flames with fire. Our perception of space and time, are they actually tracking something that is kind of spacey and timey beyond direct experience? Or are they a, like a, a version construed in the mind to give the, the simplified understanding of something beyond itself, something much more sophisticated or something that's totally different. And it's like, to how much of a correlation is there between our experience of space and time and what it is supposed to be representing beyond experience. And it could, they could be highly similar or not similar at all. And I sort of wonder actually, perhaps they're not very similar at all, though actually what greater reality is like time, you know, our linear perception of time, it's not like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from what little, and it's very little, I know of, of quantum mechanics and state-of-the-art physics. You know, I read the pop science articles. My goodness, uh, <laughs> our perception of space and time is nothing at all like uh, what is uh, happening according to our, our best models of, mm -hmm. of physical reality. And the uh, mm -hmm. best minds in the world disagree uh, hotly about uh, foundations of, of mm -hmm. space and time. Is it emergent? Uh, is it just, you know, space-time, you know, is, is one kind of unified field equation um, mm -hmm. from what I understand. Uh, so they're not actually different They're uh, And this can be observed as well in, uh, in meditative experience, the experience of space, the experience of time, they co-arise. Well, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they seem to be, yeah, emergent in, in experience. And again, but how much, how much of our experience is tracking with greater reality? So what, I mean, another thought with the self, like with the self models, the self models are actually quite latent experience where you see the sense of of a um, personal identity with history and, and and thoughts and 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 modeling of the the body schema and where you are in position in relation to you know someone else and and tracking how this organism's uh, behavior is and personality type is and trying to model the other person in front of you and seeing those constructions actually appear quite late once you get your uh, noticings per second quite fast you see like actually these are pretty delayed functions and there's like lots of things to recognize before that even comes online and then I and you know it's a, there's this thought I have about okay how are you construing God if you think God has a personal identity and if he, if God is conscious you know the, 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 the conscious cosmos and he is a personal identity well is that personal identity actually that delayed of a function like it is for humans and it's like well then why would you call something so delayed the ultimate god and there's things more things more foundational uh before it um and when it okay when it comes to consciousness again you have to see in your own mind are you construing consciousness as a as a kind of special substrate as a special substance or film how thick is consciousness perceived to you as it as as like it is actually a thing existing i would are you even consciousness is empty and in that sense it doesn't really exist i'd imagine it's maybe perhaps the biggest trick ever played we're convinced we're conscious and it's like how do you know you're conscious well oh, i just i just am it's as if you you can't not be fooled 
by this thing. But then again, the, it speaks to why can't we say anything about it? Um, you know, I think when it comes to perceiving colors, you say, okay, this is, this is kind of an orangey red notebook. And it's like, how do you know it's orangey red? Well, I just see it, but I can't describe it to a blind person. There's nothing I can say about this color. And I'm, I'm yet I'm convinced I'm seeing it. And there's nothing I can say about consciousness, yet I'm convinced I'm conscious. I think is perhaps the biggest trick. <laughs> this, this, this goes straight to the heart of, uh, this goes straight to the heart of, you know, some of the most uh, abstruse uh, and enjoyable, if you like that kind of thing, Buddhist philosophy, where in fact, anything and everything uh, that you could possibly uh, term with a, with a noun um, or a verb for that matter is uh, upon final analysis, uh, empty or unfindable. That's a good word. Uh, it speaks mm, to yeah. exactly what you're saying. Um, the, uh, the atoms of experience, uh, you, you, you really discern both with inference and with yogic, you know, meditative perception, uh, consciousness, uh, space, time, uh, you know, medium sized dry goods. <laughs> um, if you, if you really look my, my, there's nothing, there's, there's no thing there. There's appearance, uh, but you can't find uh, either through inference or perception. You can't find any substance. But perhaps this is something interesting to talk about as well. It's something I'm, I'm trying to detail that there's a, a super precision, super precision perception that is attained at fourth path, where you're seeing simultaneous uh, expansion and contraction, simultaneous form and emptiness and again again with the decentralized mind it's like you there's such fast information processing that you like it's like you almost see the trick that you see, you see that what this is it's not it's neither it's not what we thought it is it's there's clearly something there's clearly something but it's not a thing like a noun and yet it all seems to be empty and yet it's not like there's nothing. It's some special something that defies categorical comprehension. Uh, uh, the like Buddha called it, be, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, no, you go. The, the Buddha called it uh, uh, yathabhuta or uh, tatata, suchness, um, or mm. things as they are. That's how yathabhuta is sometimes translated. And I'm probably getting the pronunciation wrong. Uh, but you know, when, when asked about the, the final reality of things, you know, the Buddha or, you know, in later texts, the bodhisattvas, they'd either just, you know, remain silent, hold up a finger, then, you know, that's kind of a Zen thing or a flower or, you know, whack with a stick uh, or, you know, you end up with something that's not very satisfying to the conceptual mind because the conceptual mind is trying to fabricate uh, a picture, uh, a, a, a syntactical uh, sentence to, to grasp at the objects, to thingify uh, to, to reify experience, but when you when you look closely through inference or or in fact direct perception, you can't you can't say anything about it. I mean, you, you can say things about it, but you're saying things about what aren't things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. which is yeah. very unsatisfying until until it isn't. <laughs> well, well it, until it isn't. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, there's this um, sense that it seems totally sensical. It seems it seems like it makes the most sense actually that it's it's neither something nor nothing, and 
uh, it's not it's not unsatisfying at all. I won't say satisfying because nothing is ultimately uh, satisfactory. <laughs> you should know that's the three characteristics, but uh, it's not unsatisfying. Uh, the um, I, I'm I'm forgetting the name of the sutta, but uh, mm. it, well, I think it, it your begins... camera has uh, oh, oh it's defocused. Here we go. Yeah. It's going into the witness. <laughs> oh, and we're back. Um, that was a cessation right there. Um, mm-hmm. What was I going to say? Oh yeah, there's a there's a sutta um, in which uh, someone asks uh, the Buddha some question. I'll put, the, I'll put the sutta reference. I'll be able to find it after the episode. I'll put it, I'll put it down there. But the Buddha replies to the question, the world relies uh, on a distinction, um, that between existence and, and, and non-existence. Uh, and then he goes on to spell out in great detail why this is mistaken uh, and that the reality of things, uh, it just it doesn't, it doesn't apply. The Diamond Sutra? Mm-mm, no, this is in the Pali Canon, although the Diamond Sutra is also just a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, I don't know. This is this has been great fun. Um, I think I think perhaps if you have some kind of final final benediction encouragement. Um. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> encourage, encouragement really encourage people to meditate. <laughs> to to that there is a, a path and progress to make, and it's so so worth it. The reduction in suffering is outstanding. It's, you know, to put it one way, people always talk about, oh, they've got this sort of like the God-shaped hole in them. Or, you know, they're trying to fill that hole inside of them. And people look for, you know, money, sex, and drugs, or whatever. And then there's a thought that, oh, those that's not how you should fill the hole. You should fill the hole with um, something healthy. You know sports and and relationships or healthy relationships at least and then no no and then there's another thought that no no but even none of those things would you have to fill the hole with jesus or someone and for me getting fourth path is like there's no hole That, that that hole it's not that it was filled by god or or anything it's like you recognize there is no hole there is no spoon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, and um, I'll put it in the uh, the show description. Um, but where where can people find you, Roger, if they want to get in contact? Oh yeah. Um, so I've got a, a meditative group called. We've got a website called meditative dev, and we run a group there. But if people want to contact me. Personally, I've got a Facebook page. You can send me a message there. And uh, yeah, I like to like to hear from people. All right. Thanks so much for, for coming on. And uh, we'll probably do this again sometime. Something, something will come up. Cool. Thank you, Winston. All right. Great fun. <laughs>